Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God They should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. The earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We come now to Revelation chapter 12 and to a whole new section of this book, Revelation can be divided into these two halves, the first 11 chapters, and then the next 11, the dividing point being right here. And it comes to a new subject. And at first it wasn't at all obvious to me how that was, because so many of the themes remain the very same. But the subject of those themes has changed just slightly. I wonder if you've already caught it. You know in this life that our great three enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those things haven't changed. The Puritans spoke of these things. Reformers spoke of these things. Great preachers in the past have spoke of these things. And they haven't changed, and they won't change until the end. Now, Revelation as a whole deals with two of those things primarily. It deals with the world, and it deals with the devil. Now, I think that the first half has dealt mainly with the world, with the the world's persecution, with the world's pressure on the church. And now I think we transition to speaking more about the devil, more about Satan's work and attacks on the church. Now, if the focus is different from the world to the devil, the answer remains precisely the same. What's going to happen? How is this going to work? Well, they are going to attack us. They are going to work against the church with everything that they have. But the answer is that they'll be overcome. 1 John 5, 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so it is with the devil, as we'll see. It's the very same thing that's going to overcome. In fact... More particularly, as we have it in the wonderful, beautiful verse, in verse 11, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Well, I've already then given away the answer to the question, because the 
title of this sermon is How They Overcame the Beast. And that's the answer. That's how they overcame the beast. Now, the devil has many names. Here he's called the, the beast. In other places, of course, he's the serpent. And that relates then back to the, the verse that we mentioned last time, the verse which helps us to understand so much of the Bible in, way back in Genesis chapter 3. Immediately upon the, the, the fall, I want us to understand again, not a single day has gone by, perhaps not even an hour, in which fallen man, with their great problem of sin, and being under the wrath of a holy God, did not already have the gospel available in one way or another. Because as soon as man fell into sin, immediately he came with what is called the proto-evangelion, the, the uh, first foreshadowing of the gospel message in Genesis chapter 3. He says, though this serpent has deceived you, and though you, Eve, has, have listened to that serpent, and for a moment he, had the, he has the upper, the upper hand in bringing you into sin and bringing all the world into darkness through that, yet it will be that through your line, the seed of the woman, the Messiah will come. And though this serpent will continue to strike at your heel as you walk in this world, though he'll continue to do as much damage as he can, yet this great Messiah, this Christ who will come from the line of Adam and Eve, he will crush the serpent's head. That's the promise. And that's the promise that we see here. It's fulfilled. He's going to keep striking at the church. He's going to keep attacking us. There's no doubt about it. And in the very same sort of way that he worked on Eve, and in other ways as well. But in the end, he will be overcome because Christ has the victory over this serpent. And because Christ has the victory, so do we. It says in Romans 16:20, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The God of peace is going to crush Satan under your feet shortly. It's an amazing thing. It's not just that Christ himself personally is going to have the victory, but through him, we are going to have the victory over our great enemy as well. That's the promise. That is the subject here. Because the issue is how they overcame the beast. Now, the, the ultimate, the foundation of all that is because Christ has overcome the beast. But what the word of God says is that we'll also have that victory in and through Christ. Well, four points this morning, speaking of these things. There's the woman, the beast, the warfare, and then finally how they overcame the beast. The woman, the beast, the warfare, and how they overcame the beast. First, let's consider this character we have introduced in the very first verse, the woman. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with a sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now, that's at first a little puzzling. And as I was speaking to those who were gathered for prayer before the service, I think perhaps that's sometimes our problem. It, it, these things seem puzzling to us because we don't know Scripture all that well. And we can be thankful for modern helps and aids and commentaries and concordances and electronic things like Bible works that enable us to see some of these things to in some way make up, sadly, for our lack of innate knowledge in the scriptures and being steeped in these things. Because I think, again, these are, are intended to be very clear. And even within Revelation itself, who is this woman? Well, there's a bad woman, of course. There's the, the whore of Babylon. But who's this good woman? Well, the only other one that's named in, in all of Revelation is the Bride of Christ. The Bride of Christ. It's the church. And furthermore, what is this symbolism that's, that we have? How can she be clothed with the sun? Well, the sun is Christ. Malachi 4.2 But to you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. S-U-N, sun. But we know, of course, that also means the son of God. This sun, this great picture, even as we have it right now, this source of all light, this source of all warmth and, and of power and of energy, 
of which everything else is, re- is a, we receive sort of a reflection. The moon is just a reflection of that. And the earth just receives of what the goodness the sun has. Well, that's Christ. And this woman is clothed with Christ. Isn't that exactly what the martyrs had? These martyrs who cry out for the Lord to take vengeance. They're told to wait a little while longer, and in the in-between time, they are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. They are clothed. And we, ladies and gentlemen, if we are in Christ, we are clothed with Christ. Good thing, too. We certainly wouldn't be decent without that clothing of Christ. We're clothed with him. And then we have these... uh, what is this idea of the garland of 12 stars? Well, 12 again appears more than once. We know it, has, it stands for the, 12, um, the, the uh, 12 children of Israel, the 12 um, tribes of Israel, the completeness of all of Israel, and also the 12 apostles. It's a way of saying it's all of the people of God, every last one of them. Speaking of this woman, she representing this covenant people from the beginning of the world until the end. Is clothed with the sun, but also these 12 stars pointing to God's people. Well, this woman, this representing Israel, representing the church as a whole, but maybe particularly, maybe a little bit more in this case, because she's giving birth, right? Well, maybe in this case it's pointing a little bit more to God's covenant people as they were in Israel, because that's where the line would come. That's the promise given to the woman of your seed, the Messiah shall come. Now, I know that we are very aware of the covenant privileges as they relate to us. As being part of God's uh, covenant people, those privileges relate to us. And I think that the people of Israel, of course, were, were all too aware of the privileges that they had. And I think they took them for granted and they didn't understand them as they truly were. But there is one very important aspect of being part of the covenant people that doesn't have to do us us directly. And that is that God was going to bring Christ through those covenant people. That that in the God's people up until the birth of Christ, they were the carriers, the human carriers, the line through which the Messiah would come. And that's an amazing thing. And that this possibility, this expectation from one generation to the next in the line of Judah that maybe now the Messiah will be born into this world, and maybe now he's going to come and he's going to crush Satan's head. Well, one day that happened. One day, about 2,000 years ago, that did happen. And Christ was born into this world. He came to do warfare with Satan. He came to be the Lamb of God, but as we're going to see, he came in order, therefore, and thereby to crush the head of Satan. Well, she was with child, it says. There's a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. And being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And in verse 5, it explains who that child was. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. We've spoken before, and I, I want us to be reminded again, I think uh, Benjamin mentioned this even at the YP yesterday, that there is no salvation without judgment. There is no being saved without also there being warfare, without there being a fight. And so in the very, of course, we rightly focus on Christ's penal substitutionary atonement, and that's the essence of this victory, as we'll see, as we've already noted. But... There is, in another perspective, this warfare. And what did Christ come to do? Yes, he came to save his people. But as it says in in Psalm 2, he also came to to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 2, verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This Christ who came, yes, to give his life an atonement for many, to lay down his life as a ransom for our sin, he also comes to dash into pieces the enemies of God. He comes with that rod of iron. It's a great thing. That Satan feared. The great thing that he hoped wouldn't happen. 
But you know, this is a picture, this Psalm 2. It's not just mentioned in this, in this one place. We also have it in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2.26, And he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end to him, I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father. So very clearly, then, this is an important verse. This is an important way for us to understand this Messiah, this Christ, as one who comes with his rod of iron to destroy the enemies of God. And of course, as we noted back in Revelation chapter 2, the interesting thing is the shift. We have the shift again. Because the promise was given that Christ himself would destroy those enemies. That Christ himself would rule over the enemy. And what do we have in Revelation 2? He who overcomes. You people, you and your ch- in that church I'm writing to. You'll rule them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like the potter's vessel. As I also have received my father. I've received this from my Father. I've received this power and authority and sovereignty and victory from my Father, and I'm going to give it to you. And so it is. Here in this this chapter, in chapter 12, they overcame him. They, the children of this this woman, the people of God, they overcame him. Well, secondly, that was the woman. The woman is the church. The woman is the covenant people of God, whether we're speaking of Israel or the, or the, the church as it is today. And secondly, there's the beast. Verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. Now, of course, we could go very far afield looking at the symbolism of those things, and we need not. Um, funny enough, when Christ is described, he's described as having a number of, of horns, isn't he? Horns are a symbol of authority. And what we're going to see as we carry on in this book is that Satan appears as much like Christ as he possibly can. He can't quite do it. So there's always a little difference, as noted in Revelation, the number of horns or, or something along those lines. He can't quite pull it off. But if you're not looking carefully, you just might mistake this beast, actually, for being the lamb. Now, God's own people don't make that mistake. God's people can't make that mistake, at least not in the big picture, because they they recognize the voice of their Savior. They hear him calling by name. They hear his word, and they come. But now people who are outside, people who are not regenerate, people who don't have the Spirit of God living in them, there's no telling what they might listen to. They can't quite tell the difference between this, this beast with ten horns, or with seven heads and ten horns, or this, or the lamb with seven horns. It looks the same to them, and his deceptions work because of it. Well, anyhow, we don't need to wonder very long. Uh, this beast is defined for us perfectly in verse nine. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. That ancient serpent, the very same one, who long ago deceived our first parents in the Garden of Eden. That very same serpent is still around, and his name is Satan. He's the devil. He's the deceiver and the accuser of our brethren. Notice what he says, he deceives the whole world. Now we understand that we have to be careful how we define the world in Scripture, but in this book, in Revelation, it always is referring to the world as it's opposed to God. And if the first part of Revelation is speaking of this world's opposition to us, here we find out why they're opposed It's because Satan is speaking to them. It's because Satan is whispering those deceptions, and they're listening. They, like Eve, are completely under the sway. He deceives the whole world. That's what he does. Now, we should also say, by the way, it's not just warfare in this world. It's not just a situation of what happens in this world. He deceived Eve, and he's deceiving the whole world. All those who are outside of Christ are under his deception, but also we should recognize that there's something going on in heaven. It says in verse 4, his tail, speaking of the, the beast, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. 
I think that this refers to the satanic rebellion in heaven. I think it means that he, over his, in his influence, he brought a number of the angels with him. These are the demons now. They were created angels, but under the influence, under the deception of Satan, many of these angels have fallen and they have become demons. That's why it is that we find in the Gospels that there are so many uh, unclean spirits, these followers of Satan, it's because they fell with Satan in this rebellion. And the idea then of being a third, I don't know if that's a specific number, but a, a good large number, of the very large number of angels that were created fell. Not the majority, thankfully, but a good large number of them. His tail drew a third of the stars and drew them to heaven. Well, how did that work? Well, I think we went over this in Isaiah chapter 14. It says in Isaiah fourteen twelve, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Well, this was before creation. There was no creation for him to rule over. What there were, however, were the angels to rule over. Of course, they being a creation, uh, I, 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 didn't mean the, I didn't mean that. So there were angels. And he wanted to rule over all the stars of heaven, all of God's angels. And so he did reign over some of them. And they fell in that rebellion along with him. Now, when we think then about this beast, and this will recur throughout Revelation and it recurs throughout Scripture, there is the element of the heavenly warfare and there's the element of the earthly warfare. Satan is continually fighting through the power of lies and deceptions and the false influence trying to get people to rebel against God. He will do it to anyone. He'll do it to an angel in heaven. He'll do it to a Christian. He'll do it to those who are outside, of course in whatever way he can possibly get those to turn away from God, to listen to his lies, he wins, at least for the moment. And that warfare is described then in our third point. The warfare, verse 4, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. A lot of Satan's warfare, his, his energy was directed towards that very Thing. He knew that his doom lay in this child that would be born, this seed of the woman. It was, his doom was already declared. One day he's going to crush her head, Satan, so you, you just know that it's going to happen. And he anticipated that and how he tried to fight against it. He tried to fight against it in the Exodus. You know, Pharaoh, if there's any, anyone ever who listened to the lies of Satan without the slightest bit of reason at all, beyond all reason. There's no other way to explain how Satan operated other than that he was wholly given over to satanic deceptions. And what did he do? Well, in Exodus 1.16, he said, when you do the, the uh, this may have been a uh, predecessor of Pharaoh, it doesn't matter, we're speaking of, uh, of Pharaoh in general. When you see the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then sh you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. And what effect would that have? If they actually pulled that off, if that particular Pharaoh was able to do that, that'd be the end. That Messiah, that Christ, that one who's going to crush his head would never come. He would have won if they had listened. If everyone had listened and obeyed, but they didn't. We know that there, was, there were those who didn't obey, those, those righteous midwives. Well, we could say the same, of course, then, for what they tried to do later on in making them serve with rigor. We're going to kill them off in their hard labor. They continue to get these people. We can't stop them. I want to get rid of them. They're a threat to me. And so Pharaoh tries to get rid of the people, but God delivers him. And he keeps on trying, and he keeps on trying. And every time that there's something that should get Pharaoh to listen and to just let the people go, it's, it's, he comes back twice as hard and twice as, as hardened against God, shaking his fist. Even after the death of the firstborn, he says, I'm going to go swallow them up 
destroy them with all my large enemy before they reach the Red Sea. They'll have nowhere to go and I'll crush them all. And if he had won, again, no rational person would be doing this at this point. All of his advisors were saying, even several plagues before, do you not see? Egypt is destroyed. You've got to give this up. No, he keeps on going. He keeps on listening to the lies of Satan. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to destroy them. And he himself is destroyed. Well, that's exactly what happens in the course of the warfare over history. He keeps on trying to destroy the covenant people and thereby to to destroy Christ. And when Christ comes in this world, he throws all everything he's got into trying to get him to listen to one of his lies. And if you can't get him to listen to one of his lies and the temptations in the desert, and he doesn't, then he tries to get him killed off. But in the very act of trying to get him killed off, he destroys himself. He has him arrested. They listen, they do it, because it was his time. He laid down his life. But it was the actual, determined plan of God that Christ would lay down his life and die on that cross And that was the victory. That was a moment of overcoming. The very thing that Satan thought was going to work. But it was his undoing. The warfare, incidentally, we'll mention this also in the application. This warfare that that carried on throughout Christ's life. Should have mentioned, by the way, you know, Herod did about the same, didn't he? It says in Matthew 2.16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all of its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Whose idea was that? Satan's, I'm sure. And if he had succeeded, then Messiah would not have come either, right? Because they would have killed off Christ along with him. But it didn't. Well, even after Christ's victory over the grave, shown in his resurrection, the end of the atonement on the cross, and then it shown publicly this victory that he rose again from the grave, that now carries out, the, the warfare continues on in this life. And that's what brings us then to our fourth point, how they overcame the beast. Because, you see, there is warfare between the beast and also the people of this woman. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. She fled because this beast is working against her, trying to kill her, representing the church. But yet Satan, yet God is going to provide for her to carry on in this time. There's warfare in heaven, verse 7. They were cast down to the earth because the wonderful thing about this warfare is when Christ laid down his life on the cross, then the great basis by which he could win against us was destroyed. Christ overcomes, and through Christ, the brethren, all Christians have overcome Satan, and answers, the question is how? By what mighty weapon are we able to overcome this Satan? How is it that he's cast down to earth, first of all? He says he's cast down to earth. There's no more place for him. This Satan who deceives the whole world was cast down to the earth, and his angels cast out with him. How? Well, it's by the blood of the Lamb. Back in Revelation 7, I said to him, Sir, you know, who are these people? These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And here we have in verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They overcame him by the blood. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not immediately apparent how it is that it works that this blood is the victory. How it is that you can overcome Satan by this blood? How does that work? Well, how is it that Satan has leverage over people? The reason why Satan has leverage over people is the sin in our hearts. It's because we want to listen to him. And because we're guilty of sin. And so his job as a deceiver and his job as an accuser, he's got a lot of leverage to work with. 
particularly in the sense of him being an accuser. Satan, the, the accuser. You know, in the book of Job, this amazing thing. This is before he's cast out of heaven, of course. But there he is in heaven. And he has freedom to accuse people. He accuses Job. He says, the only reason why Job loves you is because you're so good to him. And you keep giving him everything. And you've put a hedge of protection around his family and his finances and everything else. And if you took away that, he'd, he'd curse you to, his fa- to your face. He's the accuser. He's always accusing us. And you know, my, one of my favorite uh, sections in the Bible and in Zechariah, when uh, it's Joshua the high priest and Satan is standing to accuse him. And what is the basis of the accusation? The basis of the accusation is that he's filthy. He is standing here in filthy garments. He has no right to be before the living God. He has no right to be in heaven. You know, uh, Satan knows true theology. He doesn't always say it. In fact, he doesn't. He always twists it one way or another. But he absolutely knows more orthodoxy than anyone in this room. All of us put together. He knows the truth. And he uses it in various ways to twist it to try to destroy God's people. Well, in this case, he's using it as an accusation. And the accusation in basis is true. You're a sinner. You don't belong here. You need to get him out of here, God. That's the accusation. But the blood, you see, the blood means that that doesn't work anymore. This most powerful cleansing agent cleans us, washes us from all sin. And now... God's people don't have any sin on them by which Satan can accuse us. You can imagine, he's been cast out, but what if if he were still there, and you or I, if we were in Christ, if we put our faith in Christ, if we're standing in heaven, and Satan starts to make his accusation, you see, he's filthy. He's such a sinner. Get him out of here. And you just look down. You say, looks pretty clean to me. The blood of Christ has cleansed me from all transgression, from all sin. There is nothing left. There's no basis for your accusation. And that's how they got the victory over the accuser of the brethren. The blood of the Lamb cleanses us from all sin. And, and, by the word of their testimony. Overcame the beast by the blood of the lamb and also by the blood, by the word of their own testimony. If Satan as accuser, if he is totally thwarted by the blood of the lamb, and he is, if he is thwarted by these things, yet he has this other thing that he can do, and that's to deceive people. He can use our own sinful natures, our sinful flesh that still remains. As long as we're in this world, yet this sinful flesh remains with us and we struggle with sin, he can still try to deceive us. And he can try to keep us from doing the things that he wants us to do. If he can't keep you within his darkness, if he can't keep you forever in blackness and darkness by keeping you from coming to faith in Christ, he can at least try to make you unfruitful. He can try to at least fight against the church and keep them from doing their business, from their work. Now, our job as the church is very simple. Our job as a people of God is very simple. What is it in those first two chapters when he's speaking to the churches, to the letters, the seven letters to the seven churches, what is it that he's holding them accountable for? Think about it. That you haven't put on enough plays? That you don't do enough for the community? That you haven't transformed the culture and he's mad at them for that and he's holding them into account? Now the one thing is faithfulness. For those who are faithful, he says, well done. Keep on being faithful. For those who haven't been faithful, he says, I want you to be faithful. He who endures to the end will overcome. I want you to be faithful. Who, what happens in, in chapter 11? There's these faithful witnesses. What is it that we're told to do in in Matthew 28? Go and be faithful witnesses of the word that I've given you to make disciples. 
those are the things that the church as a whole and we in particular will ultimately be held accountable for. Of course, we still have our vocations. There's no doubt about that. These people in Revelation, they had their vocations too. But ultimately, as a church, what we're being held accountable to is simply being faithful. And here it says that they overcame him by the word of their testimony. How does that work? By what, by what way can we overcome Satan? Well, Satan is trying to get us to shut up. Satan is trying to get us to change the message. And as long as we don't listen to him, we have the victory. He wants us to shut up because he knows that this is the means by which this verbal proclamation of the truth, this faithful witness of the word of God, faithful witness of God's people, that's what's going to bring Christ the victory. Christ is determined to save each and every one of his elect people. God has, the Father has given him those sheep and he says, you are going to save these sheep. And the Lord Jesus Christ is not a disobedient son. He is going to do what it takes to save those sheep. And meanwhile, Satan at every point is trying to keep those sheep from coming. And he knows if he could get this church to shut up, if we could get all churches to be quiet, if we could get all churches to speak something else other than the gospel, then maybe, just maybe, one or two of those sheep wouldn't come and he'd have the victory. On the other hand, the children of the church, the children of the woman, they overcome the beast not only by the blood of the lamb, they also overcome by the word of their testimony. As by their mere refusing to be silent, God gives them the victory over Satan because the victory is won when these witnesses are faithful and God enables them, therefore, to speak the truth in love and to bring his people to salvation. A final aspect of this fourth point is speaking of how they didn't love their lives. And they did not love their lives to the death. They didn't love their lives. It is a powerful thing if somebody is willing to lose their life. You know, in, in warfare, in terrorism, in counterterrorism, and all the rest of it that we have these days, life is a powerful leverage on people. People naturally do not want to give up their life. People naturally want to hang on to it with everything they've got. And therefore, people always have a certain leverage. If you're captured, for instance, if you're a prisoner of war, they always have this leverage because they know that you want to keep your life. And if you don't want to lose your life, then you'd better say this or you'd better do this. And that works also even in battles. If you come across a, a cowardly people and they don't even want to get hurt, they're just going to run away as soon as the first shots are fired. And you certainly don't fear people like that. But on the other hand, what if some person is firmly convinced that they cannot be slain? Or what if someone is firmly convinced that even if they happen to be slain, that where they're going is far better? And they're willing, therefore, to lay down their lives. Well, if, if Satan is fighting against such people, he's, he's going to be afraid of them. That's not the sort of enemy that anyone wants to run into. And what we've already seen in Revelation chapter 11 is that God's faithful witnesses cannot die. And they cannot be silenced until the time of their testimony is complete. Until the things that they have given, until the things that God has given them to do in this life, until they're complete, nothing can possibly happen to them. How could it? God is the one who sustains this entire universe. God is the one who gives power and withdraws it. God is the one who even enables Satan on the leash to go as far or as, as short as he desires. And they are willing to lose their lives. We have to, you know, even to come to Christ. That's what he says. We have to be willing to let go of our lives in this world. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. 
and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. In order to reach on to Christ in faith, you have to be willing to let go of things in this world. You have to be willing to let go of trying to save yourself through your own effort. Because if you keep trying to do that and trying to reach on to Christ, it won't work. These things are going in different directions. You can't both hang on to the dock and onto the boat of salvation at the same time. You have to let go of the dock in order to get into the boat of salvation and faith. That's why John 12, 25 said, He who loves his life will lose it. He who clings on to things in this life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for, for eternal life. That's the way we came in the first place to Christ. We were willing to lose our lives. And that's the way we remain faithful. We don't ever let Satan have that leverage over us. We say, Satan, we've, we've already laid down our lives, even to come to Christ in the first place. And we're willing, therefore, we don't love our lives so much that we're unwilling to remain faithful or willing to lay them down. That's a powerful thing. Well, to apply these things, um, I would say, first of all, don't lay down the weapon. Don't lay down the weapon that works. If that's the very thing that Satan is afraid of, if he is so afraid of these words of testimony, if that's the thing that's guaranteed to work, if that's the thing, of course, it's all based on the blood of Christ, that's the, the foundation for everything else. But if it's the words by which the church has the victory, the faithful words, then don't lay down that weapon. What are the options that Satan has in order to get that weapon, to defeat that weapon? Well, first of all, just for us to be silent. Just to convince us that silence is the best thing. I remember this uh, thing in Christian Union teaching us how to evangelize our friends. And uh, one of the things was to be okay with disappointment, to be okay with someone saying no or rejecting the, the gospel in you. And, and uh, it was saying how Satan can sometimes work with um, disappointments. You try to witness to someone and you're a little ham-handed in it. You don't go about it in the right way. And uh, the, the person just doesn't be, become a Christian and they're no longer your friend either. And you walk away in disappointment and there's a kind of a, a picture of Satan whispering to you and says, oh, you know, I really messed that up. And yeah, you really messed that up, didn't you? And, uh, you made it much worse than it was. And you say, yeah, man, I, I don't know if I should even try that again. And, and, uh, and Satan says, yeah, you can make it a whole new ministry. You can call it Shut Up for Christ. You know, and it's very true. Shut up for Christ. I I think that that is a wonderful, powerful ministry in the hands of Satan. And he says you just make it worse when you open your mouth. That's one way to get us to lay down that weapon that he hates. is just to get us to be silent. Another way is to get us to be distracted by other things. To convince us that other things are also really important. Yes, 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 of course. Yes, you probably should... Open your mouth once in a while. You probably should be a witness to the truth in one way or another. But there are so many other things that are really important. Don't we see the need of, of the poor people? Don't we, we see the reality of, of bad things in this, this society? And shouldn't the church really be working on those things entirely? Well, again, those things are lawful, those things are legal, and in in many cases, our professions, our vocations call us to do that. But they should never draw us away from from being faithful witnesses. And particularly with regard to the church, we should be very clear that our message is the verbal proclamation of the gospel. So all those, even in lawful things, we cannot be distracted from the things that we've been given by God. Make sure that we are very clear with what we are to do. Well, also to use worldly methods. That's another way. Let's say that the church is right on track, that what we're supposed to do is preach the gospel. We're supposed to make disciples. Another way to get us to lay down that weapon is is for Satan to say, yes, definitely, you should preach the gospel. But you know, that old preaching with you with a pulpit and you wearing a tie, that is outdated. You need to get yourself some multimedia extravaganza. 
you need to get a puppet show. You need to get some sort of new technology to do this sort of thing. Because you see, that's what the world is doing. Everyone else has moved on, and this is old-fashioned. Well, even by using worldly methods, that's enough to lay down that. God didn't give us images in order to reach. Satan is not afraid of images. Did you know that? He could care less if this church is absolutely filled with images. And you, I went to some churches in Ukraine that were absolutely filled with images. And I get the feeling that Satan was not shaking in his boots about that. You can have as many images as you want. He's afraid of this word and its faith and its truth and its clarity preached in faithfulness. So even by worldly methods, that's enough. But see, 2 Corinthians 10.3 says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Let us never forget that it is not just the end result that God cares about, it is also the method. Everything along the way, he gets glory by you using the methods that he's given. And as we fight against Satan in this world, we must remember that the weapons that we use are not worldly, they're not carnal, but spiritual, and the ones that God has, has given us. And, third, and fourthly, and, and finally in this, just by using worldly measurements even. So let's say he doesn't convince us to use worldly methods. We're, we're still doing exactly what he's given to us, verbal proclamation, the word, making disciples. Those things are what's really the church is supposed to be doing. Well, there's one other way to do it, and that's what he did with David. What if he says, why don't you just check and see if what you're doing is working? Just check. And I want you to use the same sort of measurements, the same sort of metrics that the world uses to see if what they're doing works. You see, what Satan's going to do then is when you use the metric of the world, you will inevitably find out that it's not working. If he gets you to use that metric, you'll say, it doesn't work. He's right. By that measurement, this whole thing is not working. That's exactly what he did with, with David. In First Chronicles 21.1, it's remarkable because it specifically mentions Satan. That's kind of rare, actually, in the Old Testament. First Chronicles 21.1, now Satan stood up against Israel. What is he going to do? What is he going to do? Is there going to be some huge frontal attack? Is he going to get David to capitulate and start worshiping Baal? Not, not at this point. And he moved David to number Israel, to use the world's metric. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. What's so terrible about that? What's so terrible about taking a census? Well, Joab, the wicked, uh, godless man Joab, tells us in the next verse, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why then does my lord require this thing, and why should he be cause of guilt in his role? See what he's saying? God is able to make whatever people you have a hundred times more. Don't you remember what, what happened uh, uh, You know, in, so many times in, in Israel's history up until this point that God just uses a small handful of people, and he's able to defeat these vast... Hasn't that even been the case in your own life, David? Where you and your small band of men have been able to defeat armies much greater. You see, God is going to get the glory from all of our victories. God is the one who makes us to stand. It does not matter how many are with us. Because the one who is with us is more than all who are on the earth. The attitude, of course, behind this census. I'm not saying that censuses are necessarily evil, but... The attitude behind it was that David would be able to gauge the real strength of his army by finding out how many are there. And that's totally, that is completely false. The real strength of his army had nothing to do with how many people were there. And that's why this was Satan's deception. Getting us to use a metric of the world to gauge the real strength. Well, what we're given is to be faithful. The whole book of Revelation is just to be faithful. In the, the, the mission, the motive, and the method, it's all got to be according to what God has given to us. All we have to do is be faithful. 
All he says in Revelation 2.10, Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Or 2.25, Behold fast to what you have till I come. And he himself describes, as he's describing himself to these churches, he says, I'm the, the faithful and true witness, and I want you to be like me. Just be the faithful and true witness. I didn't have many with me. Do you remember? John, I'm sure you remember. It was just me and you and the other, the other 11 for most of the time. Sometimes other people came and sometimes they went. It wasn't, the strength wasn't in numbers. The strength wasn't in wealth. The strength wasn't in worldly methods. The strength was in God and so it ever will be. You know, I was just thinking about this as well. Satan is a very experienced and skillful liar and it takes skill to be a good liar. Satan's got a lot of experience and he's got a lot of skill to be able to pull it off. You have to be able to do that, to be a good liar. And that's why not everyone's qualified to do it. To pull it off the way that he does. But you know, the thing about being faithful is it doesn't require all that great skill. We don't have to be mega intelligent. We don't have to have, uh, know everything about everyone. Deceivers do. All we have to do is to receive from the hand of God his word and be faithful to it. That's all that we have to do. That's not asking too much at all. It doesn't demand much. It just demands us to be faithful. Secondly, I have to say we need to overcome him. Because I'm, I'm fairly sure there are those who are still being overcome by Satan in this room. I suspect that there are those who have never come to saving faith in Christ. And I want you to know that is the one thing that Satan does not want you to do. He will do everything to keep you away from putting your trust and your faith in Christ. Whatever doubts he can possibly play up, whatever, however you want to hold on to your sin, he's going to tell you that this, that one sin or that other sin, you won't be able to live without it if you're a Christian. Your life will be miserable. And he'll try to get you to forget about eternity and the judgment of God and eternal hell that lies ahead for those who remain outside of Christ. He is your enemy. We are at war. Don't forget it. He's trying to kill you. You need to overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. This thing that is going to clean you, this thing that's going to put you beyond ultimately his power, his power to dominate you, you need to put your faith in the shed blood of Christ Jesus who laid down his life to be an atonement for many. When you put your faith in him, then you move yourself beyond that complete control and dominion of Satan. You too can overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. And it's not hard either. You know, we are saying it's, it doesn't require much skill simply to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, of course it helps to to know as much as you can, particularly the word of God. But all that's being asked of us in whatever situation we are is to be faithful. Well, if you're not yet a Christian, all that's asking of you is simply believe. You don't have to construct something. You don't have to do all the calculus in your brain to imagine, okay, how many more days of sin do I have in this world and is it worth it? Or what kind of persecution can I expect in this world? You don't have to do all that calculus. Because we know that eternity, of course, overwhelms anything that could possibly happen in this world one way or another. All you have to do is believe, and you'll be saved. And finally, there is spiritual warfare. Because though he is cast out, though he knows that his end is near, that doesn't mean that he stops. If the Lord God saw fit to allow his own son to be hounded by Satan all throughout his days in this world, we're no better than that. And he has his own good reasons for doing it. What we need to do is remember that there is spiritual warfare. He's always trying to get us to lay down that weapon and to pick up something else. He's always trying to damage us in other ways. He's trying to get us to sin. It's not always him personally, of course. He's got all these minions. Who knows how many of them? There's tons and tons of them. He's always suggesting things to us. And we know that they, that only works if they have a receptive ear. And that's uh, 
illustrated probably in Second Kings 22. Some people have a big trouble with this because it seems like the Lord is making someone lie. Well, just keep in mind that this is back when Satan and all his angels were still in heaven, right? They were still there, still doing their work. And those demons were more than glad to try to get sinners to sin. And I think that's what happens there in Second First Kings. Uh, sorry, First um, Kings 22. 1 Kings 22, verse 6. And the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. 400, you remember, uh, like the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 uh, prophets of Asher. It seems like the prophets of the Lord is only a couple of them, but there's hundreds and hundreds of prophets of these false gods. So keep that metric in mind. The king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go up against Ramoth Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? So they said, go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat says, "Mm, is there still not a prophet of the Lord here that we may uh, inquire of him? I don't really trust these 400 prophets here. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there still is one man, Milkiah, the son of Imla, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. I hate him. Yes, well, you see, Melchiah was a faithful prophet, and he was, going to, he was going to say the truth. Well, we have a, a greater explanation. So what we find from this king of Israel is that he is not receptive to the truth. He's receptive to lies. He has the option of listening to the one true and living God through Melchiah, and he has the option of listening to all these prophets, and he wants to listen to the prophets who are affirming what he already believes. Now, what stands behind that? Well, just for a moment, we are, the curtain is pulled back. And we get to find out. It says in 1 Kings twenty-two nineteen, Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. The Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and so do. No doubt this was an evil spirit. No doubt this was a demon. And the Lord is using that as a a tool in this case. He's sovereign over all things. Everything that Satan does, he's ultimately in control of because he's in control of all things. That's his perfect sovereignty. Everything that ever happens. If there's something that happens that he's not in control of, then he's not God. Because he is God, he's in control of all things. And the Lord says with great confidence, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Well, of course, he's God. He knows the future and he's determinate. But he knows that this man is all too susceptible to lies. He wants to hear good concerning him in this world. And he's utterly refusing to listen to the word of God that sometimes is contrary to our base inclinations. Well, we can't be like that. We've got to do what it says in Ephesians 6. We've got to put on the whole armor of God that we've be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We've got to do those things. And sometimes you wonder, why is, what is the relationship between the whole armor of God and the fact that we can stand against the devil? Well, the devil only works if we have a listening ear and a receptive heart to his lies. And all the rest, except for the sword, which is to fight against him and those who follow him, uh, but all the rest of it, well, even that, of course, we know that's, that can be used as a defense as well, the word of God, of course. But all the rest of these things are, are ways of building up our defenses so that we're not so receptive to his lies. Stand therefore, in verse 14, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith by which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit and in all these things you see it's making us less receptive when we have this truth when you think of when we have God's Christ's righteousness on us when we have this helmet of salvation we remember that we are saved when we remember that Satan has no leverage on us in all these ways turning our hearts to God and not listening to Satan. We have to do this spiritual warfare because he is our enemy. We are at war. Don't forget it. But we already have the victory through the shed blood of Christ.
Let's pray. Lord God, you have given us the victory. Help us never to forget that, with the shed blood of Christ. And Lord, how we pray that all those who have not yet had this victory, who yet are under the sway of the wicked one, that Lord, they would take this opportunity, that they would consider their ways, they would consider what lies in wait for them as this great deceiver is trying to keep them from salvation. Well, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be very powerful, very powerful among us and enable us to listen to your words and not to the words of the deceiver. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.